Hello, my name is Julia Streets, and welcome to Diversity Podcast, talking about equity, inclusion, and diversity in financial services. And on the podcast, we seek to shine a light on positive progress, call out areas requiring further focus, and offer lots of ideas to help drive change. And today, we are recording this episode live on stage at the Women in Payments ASEAN Symposium, live in Singapore. <laughs> so together today, we are going to be exploring notable trends and developments in the region. And in this episode, we'll be exploring gender dynamics, the power and the potential of intersectionality, and the role of male allyship. So allow me to introduce our guests. I am joined on stage by Danielle Sharp, Sanjeev Chashraf, and Christy Duncan. Danielle Sharp is the Chief of Staff to the Global Head of Transaction Banking for Standard Chartered Bank. She is responsible for the day-to-day -day running of the global transaction banking business and execution of strategic initiatives. She has held several roles across financial services and law enforcement, which is where she started her career in the police force, spanning both retail and wholesale banking. So Danielle, welcome to the show. Thank you. Joining uh, Danielle is Sanjeev Chathrath. He's a partner of the financial services and Asia-Pacific payments leader at EY, focused on helping world's leading financial institutions and capital market organizations across many areas. Think assurance, consulting, strategy, transactions, tax services. And he's also EY's Asia-Pacific leader for payments. He's the founding member and the previous co-chair of the Male Allies Initiative of the Women's Foundation and a member of the 30% Club promotion promoting gender diversity at board and senior management levels. So Sanjeev, welcome to the show. Thanks, Julia, for having me. It's a pleasure, it's a pleasure. And last but not least is Christy Duncan. She has dedicated her career to empowering the professional and personal development of women in the payments and fintech industries. She founded Women in Payments back in 2012, a global organization that connects, educates, and champions women in the payments industry. And prior to that, she was a global payments consultant advising C-suite leaders and global financial institutions, payments networks, fintechs, regulators, and more. So Christy, welcome to the show. It's great to be here at your amazing symposium. And it's a pleasure to be here too with you, Julia. Thank you. So I've given a brief introduction for each of you. Um, I'd love to come to each of you to explore what you're particularly focused on right now beyond your biographies. So Christy, in about one minute, what are you focused on? Thanks so much for that, Julia. Well, I think at a macro level, clearly I'm here to build a global community of women and our allies around the world of payments. We also strive to deliver value to our community of women leaders, innovators, rising stars, as we just uh, celebrated the awards for here for ASEAN. At a micro level, we run six symposia every year around the world of payments in six different markets. We run award and recognition programs. We run mentorship and leadership programs. We do weekly networking events, our Palm Cafes. We've got a My Career in Six, which, is, which profiles career options and some amazing women leaders in our industry. And we've got a talent board. So lots going on and lots to keep us busy and helping us to build this global community. Amazing. And if you think about the impact of that work, I mean, that is significant. And I know that kind of membership is a really core part of, of what you're doing. Uh, Sanjeev, can I come to you as well? Uh, again, beyond the world of your biography and, and your world in payments, curious to know what you're focused on right now. 
Sure, Julia. So a lot of my focus also is around uh, what the impact is of the work that, that I do. I'm very, very grateful that I, I'm very privileged to work for an organization that's very, very deeply rooted and committed towards promoting diversity, equity, and inclusion. Outside of work, I mean, we've, we've done a lot of work. I mean, in my personal capacity, uh, very recently we've made a pro bono commitment to run sessions for executives briefing around new emerging topics of future growth, like Gen AI, blockchain, et cetera. Uh, you already mentioned I'm part of the 30% club, so very, very focused on how we can get greater women representation at the senior most levels within organizations. I'm also uh, on the advisory board of 9x9, which is a local NGO in Singapore, which is very focused on researching uh, what, what it will take to get to parity in an Asian context. A lot of the research on this topic has very Western kind of slant, so we have focused on what's required in this particular region, given just the social norms, as well as backgrounds tend to be very, very distinct to other parts of the world. Nine by nine, I love that. I'm very curious. If only we had time, I think we'd do a whole episode on each of your initiatives. But um, Danielle, let me ask you the same question. What are you focused on? Absolutely. So I come with a corporate um, agenda, of course, and I'm very, I'm very interested in making sure that Standard Chartered as an organization can do the right thing by our, by our colleagues. But I also sit on the um, Alumni Advisory Board for Loughborough University. And again, that's getting into the depths of early careers. And so for me, the passion that I bring to this is the gender agenda beyond traditions. Think intersectionality. Think you know, females as breadwinners and what's the role of a man in that. Think females and age, the generation. And you know, a, a very interesting statistic is that for Asia, the median age today is actually 31.9. And so there is a big role for up-and-coming female talent in leadership. And therefore, I have a strong passion in driving that um, both across the region and across my network. And it's fascinating because across the board, we're thinking pipeline, as you say, from early age right the way through to board representation. And of course, inspiring the, the rising stars and the innovators in the middle. And, and Christy, well, let's get into your observations of the region, if you like. And can I come to you first when we think about, you know, you very much have a global remit. But when you observe across the ASEAN uh, region, what gender representation dynamics do you particularly observe? Thanks for that question, Julia. I wanted to pull in some statistics here, and Deloitte has done a study called Advancing Women in Financial Services uh, in 2021, and they looked at a number of different regions around the world. And what they found was that in Singapore in particular, because the government has made it a priority for diversity at various levels, looking at the senior leadership level in particular, Singapore enjoys 25% women leaders at the senior leadership level. And I won't get into all the other levels, but just kind of starting there. And that's forecast to stay about the same for the next few years. Across ASEAN, however, not all the countries have come to realize that gender diversity as an, is an advantage and a priority. So when we look at, for example, Japan, which is not exactly part of ASEAN, but part of Asia in general, their senior leadership is uh, women comprise about 4% of that senior leadership level. In India, it's about 10% compared to Singapore here is around 25%. So Singapore's doing quite well. We had some fabulous um, women speakers here today and, and there's lots of opportunity. When we look at the World Economic Forum has done a global gender gap study in 2023, Norway and Iceland come out 
of course, on top, as they often do. Singapore's number 49. Singapore's got a gender gap of 73.9% versus the global average of 68.4%. So we're ahead of the global average, but still lagging behind the world leaders. Um, where must we focus to promote this gender agenda and the gender diversity, as I call it? Well, certainly recognizing that gender diversity is a priority and it can help us to gain competitive advantage. It can help us to do a lot of things. We need to actually promote that and prioritize that. We need to measure and monitor our gender pay gaps. We need things like all roles flex policies, allowing people in our organizations to work how they want, where they want, when they want. And our leaders must be visible role models in these things. And lastly, I think we also need targets and KPIs so that you, you, can't, me you, know, you can't actually promote things unless you're measuring them and, and measuring the progress over time. So lots of opportunity to do that and I'm looking forward to, to seeing that progress. Yeah. And as we know, if you can measure it, it gets done. It gets done. But, but let me just pick up on one particular area, though, where you talked about sort of the dynamics of sort of flexible working. And Danielle, I'd love to get your, your thoughts on this, because more people I talk to uh, in the region, they say, you know, don't, don't forget the familial dynamics at play. Love to come to you, if you would, about, you know, history of kind of family structures, Somebody described it to me as the kind of the baggage of heritage of the way in which families support each other. And I think particularly, you know, I, I hear people talk about expectations of grandparents, the role of mothers-in-law, other family members on supporting women as they also want to drive their careers. And I'd love to get your, your thought, particularly what positive support models you see being created. Thank you for the question. Firstly, a disclaimer, I am not a woman from ASEAN. Um, I am also not a mother for various reasons, but primarily through choice. However, the role that I have played in Singapore for the last four years has allowed me to sit in a leadership capacity across a front-to-back population of 5,000 people. So I've learned, I've heard, I've listened, and I've reflected a lot. Now, to come to that from the family expectations and all the societal norms, let's call it, there definitely is a role for grandparents. And so there is no denying that in the ASEAN culture, it does appear that the expectation is that you stay at home with your family until you have your own. And when you do have your family, your family will help. Now, speaking to my colleagues across the region, there's a few misconceptions that they um, informed me of. The first one being that the family network is willing the second being that the family network is able or available. Um, and thirdly, is that it actually helps them. Now, to reflect a, a moment on those comments, um, of course, if you're from a large family, which often is the case, perhaps other children or grandchildren are prioritized. If your parents are of a certain age, they may not even be here anymore, and that's a, a real-life situation. And of course, when it comes to whether or not it actually helps, sometimes it causes more stress than it does ability for a female to go back into the workforce, knowing that whoever's looking after them across the family will respect their, their parental expectations. 
So I think in terms of support networks that, that I've seen, first and foremost, a, a couple of statistics to bring this to life because I think it helps. Firstly, female management in ASEAN between the years of 2000 and 2020 actually only rose by two percentage points. When you look at some of the global and macro crises that are happening across the world, let's take the COVID pandemic as one, it was clear that actually that added a huge amount of extra pressure on females at that time. Um, and one of the statistics from the UN was that during that COVID pandemic period, school closures added an extra 672 billion hours of unpaid childcare. And based on the gender divide in the pre-pandemic world, women shouldered 512 billion of those. And yet when you look at the dual career percentages, McKinsey, they've recently published their Women in the Workplace report, the statistics show that 81% of working women are in dual career partnerships, but actually only 56% of men can say the same. And this one really, really interested me. So this was a, a, a quote from the Minister of Social and Family Development in Singapore. He said that only 55% of men who had access to paternal leave actually took the paternal leave. And that's because they didn't feel as though society would look at them as doing the right thing. It's not their role to look after children. And so something's got to change. And I think society has a huge role to play in that. We need to look at social norms more broadly and collectively. And we can't just do that in the financial services. But where I see support models really coming into their own, it is active fathers, um, it is active partners. Um, and of course, the family network plays a big role in that, but also the networks that organizations provide. Um, and having those lean-in circles, having people to bounce ideas around on and know that it's okay. It's okay to work flexibly and actually being at home doesn't mean that you're not working or out of sight doesn't mean out of mind. And I think we've come a long way, but we've got a huge way to go. And I think that's why it's important to come to, to you and thank you for you know, kind of, um, the comments you made at the beginning, uh, acknowledging you know, um, not being from the region and also not having children as well. I really appreciate that. But the reason why I came to you with the question is because as a chief of staff, you, know, you, you, you have the purview of the entire organization. So, so getting the thoughts of your, your employee base uh, was incredibly important to bring that into the conversation. And Sanjeev, you know, I'm curious to hear your point of view as well. You know, you, based on your observation and also reflecting on what you've just heard as well, what do you see that works well and where do you think there should be greater understanding, appreciation and improvement? Yes, yeah, so, so when I think about it, Julia, I think there's a lot of positive momentum and, and I think we, we need to acknowledge it because otherwise I think uh, we can start to feel very, very down in terms of everything that's kind of stacked up against this particular cause. And I think when I reflect over my career over the last 27 odd years, no doubt there is progress on many fronts. And I think for one, there is much heightened greater awareness on this particular topic. Uh, a lot of the conversations like the conversation we are having today perhaps would have been even taboo maybe 25 years ago. So I think the fact that there's better access to information, data is, is encouraging. Uh, there are also, I think, many progressive companies are making, uh, taking steps, and many of them are trailblazing in terms of some of the policies that are instituting. And increasingly, you do find both governments as well as private sector working hand in hand on many of those fronts. Having said that, uh, I think the pace of change, you asked in terms of what, what are the things uh, that are working well and what not, 
I think the pace of change still leaves a lot to be desired. So depending on which research report you look at, anywhere between 100 years to 170 years is when people expect to get to parity. Clearly, that's not good enough. So I think we do need to reflect on what else needs to be done to accelerate it. Similarly, I think there's a, a very real uh, risk that if we don't engage in what the future of work is going to be, there is a, a very real risk that we are going to carry through a lot of those traditional biases that have existed in particularly white-collar roles into the future of workforce. Uh, we know over the next seven, eight years, almost 80-plus percentage of jobs are going to get significantly transformed. If that's the case, we need to ensure that there's a level playing field in terms of access to information, access to new emerging technology skills. These are not going to get developed in just social closed circles, but everybody needs to have equitable access so they can also develop themselves, uh, also reskill themselves to be even more contributing in the future of work. The last thing I'll say, which is also I mean, both a plus as well as a risk, is in this particular region, and Daniel alluded to the fact that demographic dividends work really well for Asia, where the median age is anywhere between 31. As ASEAN is even better. It's about 30 years relative to other parts of Asia, but also other parts of the world. I think that's a very, very positive thing. This region has also always been a very enthusiastic adopter of new technology which is evidenced by a lot of new innovations that are happening in payments in particular, in this particular region, a lot of very groundbreaking, transformative kind of stuff. I think that tells us that the new generation is going to be a lot more adept to be using technology to solve a lot of those issues. Uh, we need to ensure, though, that you've got equal representation of men as well as women in designing those new technology tools so that you don't carry forward the same biases that have existed if, for example, the point that Daniel made, if a lot of the, the, the time that women are spending outside of work is to, to take care of the household, we know already through research that women generally tend to be time poor because of just the multiple jobs and multiple hats that they, they, they wear. So I say I think we've got to also hence ensure that a lot of the new technology investments are happening in those areas that are going to ensure that women are able to manage a lot of those norm expectation from a society uh, and become much more efficient in doing those things. And it ain't going to happen if somebody doesn't deliberately lean into it. So, so I think there is value to think about are we directing a lot of those investments around and capital around new technology in those areas which can help uh, everybody equally. Mm. Uh, and hence, I mean, whether it's femtech, hertech, a lot of those themes I think are very, very relevant in this particular region. And, and that's about sort of lifestyle efficiency, home efficiency, organizational efficiency, also looking at the future and ensuring that it's fit for the, the contemporary world, but also it, it brings all your employees and all your talents with you, which is, which is, uh, which is phenomenal. And one of the things I, I'd kind of just to move the conversation on just a fraction is I'd love to think about, and, and this is what we do on the podcast, right? We talk about diversity and inclusion through the lens of gender, but also LGBTQ+, race, neurodiversity, age, disability, parental care, and, and so, so much more. Uh, and a really big element of that, of course, is this word intersectionality and the power of it. Um, so, Danielle, can I come to you? When you think about driving change at scale, and that is the remit of your role, is, you know, what particularly impresses you? What, what do you look at and just go, that's great practice, not just best practice, but great practice? It's a really interesting question, and before I answer it, 
There's um, an American civil rights activist named Kimberly Crenshaw, and she once said, not all inequality was created equal. And she's absolutely right. Um, and I think it's about moving away from the facets of being one specific stereotypical inequality that may be labeled as you. And where I've seen success, now my experience as a mid-career white heterosexual woman may look different to the experience of a late career woman of color. And recognition of that is really, really key. And where I have seen organizations come together in order to really make a difference here is A, opening up the conversation so that people start to recognize and understand that there is more to this than just one facet of who you are and who you belong to. Um, and secondly, it's driving policies. It's driving policies that are applicable to all different walks of life and not just the traditions that we once knew. Um, and therefore, parental leave as an example. It should not matter how that child came into the world. It doesn't matter if you're a biological parent or not. Um, you still have a child and therefore the applicability of that policy becomes important. And I am seeing more and more of that and that's certainly where I become impressed and want to see more at scale. Thank you, and it's, it's important to, to get your thoughts on that. And Christy, can I bring you in here as well? I'd love to hear your thoughts about areas of positive progress. And, and we are starting to see the green shoots, as it were. Um, and I am agreeing with, certainly with everything that Sanjeev and, and Danielle have said so far. But uh, really across the industry, across various different geographies, we are starting to get more and more recognition at senior levels of our corporations, of our governments, that that diversity is a priority and and they're moving towards putting in place policies and and national policies corporate policies uh, to start to address that which is which is a positive thing. Uh, flexible work policies we've been through the pandemic now we know that we can work certainly in financial services most of us remotely and still be effective um, somebody once said we need to fix the industry not the women and I think this is a really good example of that, is, is changing our mindset. But another thing that I, I see from my vantage point is, as a global industry, financial services, many of our organizations are headquartered outside of ASEAN. And often, if they're headquartered in a region that might be further advanced in their thinking on gender diversity in particular, and they bring their corporate policies to their different regions within that organization. And so that starts to push on the, the gender agenda in, in the different regions, which is, which is a good thing. The other thing is that some of these global organizations and some of the, the local ones as well are starting to push the gender agenda up and down their supply chains, which also helps to promote that agenda. The last thing that I'll mention, but only briefly, is male allyship, because I know we're going to talk about that soon. Well, uh, there's only one person we could come to in the question of male <laughs> allyship. Sanjeev, I'd love to bring you in here, really, when we think about, um, you know, well, actually, let, let's ask you sort of more directly, if you don't mind, because I'm curious to know what's convinced you to step up as a notable male ally and as a role model, and what advice do you give your male colleagues to follow suit? Yeah, that, that's going to probably have a long answer. Uh, but I'll, I'll, I'll start by saying that maybe I think there's a personal and there's a professional angle to it. So let me start with the professional one. 
Uh, I'm convinced that I think if you want to build a high-performing team, you need to have a diverse team. I mean, I've, I've experienced it firsthand throughout my career. I know it. And of course, now, I mean, nowadays, there's a lot more study to back it up, that if you wanted to build a resilient organization, if you want to build a high-performing organization, why organization, even economies, that I mean, diverse teams actually do outperform non-diverse team over a sustained period of time. So I think that, that, to me, is almost like table stakes. So for me, I think if you want to build a leadership team, whether you want to build a high-performing business, uh, it is in your interest to ensure that team represents the community that you operate in and the clients that you serve. Uh, the personal one, I think, uh, actually, unlike many of my other male allies that I've been very fortunate to partner with on a number of those initiatives, including the male allies network that you referenced, when we originally started it, it was five of us. Now that network has grown to about 150 C-suite men who've all taken personal and professional pledges on what action they're going to do to bring about change. And all of us have got different stories. For me, I mean, I've, I've got a personal story, which actually is, I mean, I'm, I'm married to a very, very strong woman who's also continually, I mean, challenges me on different things where I can develop myself further and can be a very straight shooter in terms of what, what I need to be different. Uh, and it's great to have uh, a council or, or a sounding board on many of those things. But what really inspired me right at the beginning was my mom, uh, who was a working mother in India uh, way back in the 60s, uh, when the infrastructure, you can imagine, was not as developed, and she was working on factory floors, managing hundreds of men uh, on a factory floor. And I think about her career and how she was able to, to navigate through all of her work in a society where she was the only working mother in many neighborhoods around hers. And when I was young, I did not have a full appreciation why my mom was not there to receive me at the school gate when all the other mothers were there. But as time went by, I could see the amount of fulfillment, but also the amount of impact that she had had, and not just at work, but also in the broader community, that for me, I think that was a very, very inspiring to, to know that, I mean, she could have achieved much more if there was the right environment around her. I mean, I can feel that I, I really want to create a lasting impact and whatever I can do in my limited capacity, I mean, I'm very, very committed to do, doing it. Wonderful. And it's, 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 uh, thank you for sharing the, your personal story and also your, your commitments to working with other men and other male allies in the organization as well to, to, to bring them to the table. Um, the time ticks by on podcasts, uh, and I wish I could control it, but sadly, I can't. But I am really curious to come to each of you and see what we've not talked about so far. We've covered an extraordinary amount in quite a short period of time. Uh, Christy, can I come to you first of all? Um, you know, what type of dynamics do you regard as having great impact? Oh my gosh, where do we start? Um, uh, I think there was a great study back in 2016 that I call out often because I think it's still quite relevant. And it came out of the UK, it was the Women in Finance Charter. And it was entitled, Empowering Productivity, Harnessing the Talents of Women in Financial Services. And it called on our industry to do three things. First, for each of our organizations to develop a policy, set targets, measure and monitor, and report on the progress annually and publicly. Secondly, to employ appoint a senior executive in our organizations to be responsible for developing and promoting that, that policy. And thirdly, to tie the compensation of the leadership um, people 
to the success of those policies. And I think that's really, really compelling uh, way that we can actually advance that gender agenda. I see, to, to Danielle's point earlier, we've got three levels. We've got national policies, we've got corporate policies, but we have corporate culture. And we need our male allies and our senior leaders to help us drive the corporate policies down into the fabric of the corporate culture. And parental leave is just a really good example of that. We've got, um, I, I say, enlightened leaders like Sanjeev, like Danielle, who really have a huge opportunity to change our corporate culture to be more supportive and welcoming for women. And we've got this, these opportunities will benefit our shareholders, will benefit our clients, will benefit our employees, because we have nothing to lose. We've got so many opportunities, we can't afford to ignore this gender agenda. So for our children, our children's children, it's just a great opportunity to really promote that gender agenda. Yeah, phenomenal. And, and sort of here you talked about, talk about charters, we've heard about pledges, we've also heard about measurements as well. There's definitely a kind of thread that runs through all of this. What, again, what measures get, what gets measured gets done. But also that there's, there's so much social impact within organizations in terms of contribution to culture, as well as the, um, the commercial gains the undeniable commercial gains that are, that are on the table as well. Daniel, similarly, love to come to you about anything we've not talked about yet that you particularly pay attention to, like to bring into the conversation. Yeah, so to reflect just on Sanjeev's comments around male allyship, I think where I have seen male allyship done very, very well requires men not to be silent. So have a voice, drive active conversation. You look at the latest statistics from the Asia Development Bank, more and more women are getting into STEM education. So how can men wrap around that? How do we harness the desire, the, the, the passion that's coming from our up and coming talent, whatever gender, but specifically for, for females here? And I love the point that you made there, Julie, about um, the commercial gains. Now, there's so much research that talks about the additional GDP that would be added if actually women were represented equally in the workplace as men. Um, and the latest statistics say that actually if we could bring more women to be equally represented in the workforce, that would drive an extra 26% in GDP. That is huge. And I think the real remarkable point for that on that for me is we're moving beyond the expectations that a headcount is a headcount. Um, and it doesn't matter who you are or where you're from, as long as you're in seat, then that ad adds to GDP. And actually more and more recognition for the differences, the unique value that females bring to the workforce and the economic and commercial gain that comes with that. Phenomenal, I love that, 26%. I mean, let's just sit with that for a second, 26%. Well, listen, let, let's go into some, some closing thoughts, and it's a question I ask all our guests on the podcast, which is, um, as we navigate, you know, arguably very challenging and interesting, it's always interesting times, but interesting economic, social, and business climate, you know, there is a real risk that diversity, equity, inclusion falls down the corporate agenda. Um, and I would love to hear your compelling reasons why it absolutely must stay high on the corporate agenda. So Sanjeev, can I come to you first of all? Sure, so, so I think, I mean, first and foremost, the economic case, the business case for diversity, equity, and inclusion, it's unrefutable. I think it's imperative that for every organization, every team leader, every team, 
that you, you try and bring about uh, a team that represents the community, but also everybody feels comfortable to be who they are, because that's the time when everybody can perform much higher. I also wanted to, to, to add to what Christy said, that I think if you think about most of the leadership teams, if anywhere between 90% to 70% of the leadership team is men, men do have a very high uh, degree of responsibility to ensure that they are the ones who are driving much more of that dialogue. Because this is not going to happen in a vacuum, so it cannot be an echo chambers of people just talking themselves. And hence, I do encourage more and more of the male allies to, to try and promote and lean into that conversation, not, not to be a bystander, like Daniel said. Uh, and I think it's also imperative for people to understand that greater inclusion for women does not lead to greater exclusion of men. And that's where I think it has to be very based on merit, ensuring that the playing fields is as level as can be, recognizing our own biases, who do we turn to in a meeting to ask for take notes, who do we turn to to arrange for catering, who do we turn to when there's a big strategic project that's coming up? We have to check our own biases sometimes and ensure there's an equitable access to everyone, and we are not carrying forward a lot of those habits that have been formed over a long, long period of time. And, and just picking up on one remark there was, um, it's not a zero-sum game when there's 26% to be gained. <laughs> Let's put it that way. So Daniel, come on, you know, talk to us about your compelling reason why this absolutely must remain high. So my, my personal reflections on this are that we talk a lot about the glass ceiling um, and therefore the corporate agenda has a huge part to play in, um, in breaking that. But I actually think it's earlier than that. I think the rungs in the ladder are broken and we collectively need to do more earlier in people's careers to stop women from being left behind, to recognize that life takes turns and tolls and that's okay. It doesn't mean that you can't come back and rise quickly through the ranks. And so how do, we, how do we make sure that earlier on in the career of a woman, um, they do not get lost um, and they have the support network around them that they need? I was in India recently talking to a, a group of, of colleagues and someone in the audience said, I'm at a point in my career where I'm deciding whether or not to have children and I worry that it's gonna limit my, my career and my future. And that makes me very sad um, because your job should never be the reason that you choose whether to or not to have children. And so there's a corporate responsibility, there's, there's a human responsibility there around how do we adapt, how do we stay flexible, how do we recognize that the future is not command and control, it is servant leadership, it is adaptability, it is the ability to respond and being a woman myself, I'm a firm believer that a woman can do a very, very good job at that. I think we're all firm believers in, in that truth, for sure. And, and, and it returns to the point that you were making, Christy, which we talk about all the time on the podcast about enlightened leadership. Uh, your, your thoughts as well, your compelling reason why, in these tough and interesting economic times, this must not fall off the agenda. Thanks for that, Julia. I think at this point we can't afford not to focus on this gender agenda. The stakes are too high. The competitive possessions are, our competitors have, are starting to realize the huge advantages when it comes to employee engagement, when it comes to, to employee empowerment, when it comes to uh, our in competitive possessions, our, even companies with more women in senior leadership have been proven to actually file more patents. We are more innovative. We are more risk, uh, better at managing risk if we have more women in leadership roles. We simply can't afford to ignore this agenda any longer. And 
to Danielle's point, it's not just for competitive for our competitive positions. It's for our humanity. It's for all of the women in our cultures and in our organizations who also benefit, and it drives the whole economy. So, so many opportunities, and we need our enlightened leaders, both men and women, to help us drive that gender agenda. What a way to see out the show. I mean, we have covered an extraordinary amount in really very short order. Um, I'd like to invite this wonderful audience live at the Women in Payment Symposium in Singapore to join me in thanking our phenomenal panelists today, Danielle, Sanjeev, and Christy. Thank you very much indeed. Very good. Yes, indeed, ladies and gentlemen, we have been recording live at the Women in Payments Symposium in Singapore in October 2023. I've been Julia Streets. Thank you, as always, for listening. And until next time, goodbye. This episode of Diversity Podcast was produced by Roshan Roberts on behalf of Julia Streets Productions. You can find out more about the guests from this week's show on our website. That's www.diversitypodcast.com. That's diversity with a C and not an S. Whilst you were there, you can also sign up to our newsletter for all our latest updates. All our episodes are available in Apple Podcasts, Spotify or your favourite podcast app. If you enjoy Diversity Podcast, remember to share on social media and give us a rating or review. And finally, our Twitter handle is at DiversityPod. Thanks for listening.